Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Winnipeg Jets fans. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is AJ, one of your hosts, and this is episode 90. And as usual, I like to associate the episode number with a player, past or present. The best player that ever wore number 90, as far as I could tell, is Ryan O'Reilly. But that's kind of painful for Jets fans. So we're going to go with Joe Juno. We'll dedicate this show to Joe Juno, former Boston Bruins. Uh, that's what my pro set um, uh, hockey cards tell me. So, and yeah, we got something cool. We got Morris Lukowicz from the WHA Jets and the early NHL Jets uh, being interviewed by Brady Strachan, uh, set up by Scott Campbell. I'll get into that in a second. But yeah, it's really, really neat stuff. Uh, if you know somebody who's into the old heritage we should call these heritage episodes uh, he talks about Gretzky and Hull and Howe and everything and uh, like I, I mentioned the early early Jets and then his career afterwards so uh, I know my dad personally will be very very keen to listen to this that's his favorite player ever so uh, I'm kind of excited just for for him also if you want to listen to another heritage quote-unquote uh, episode uh, Roddy did an interview with Scott Campbell earlier last year so you should uh, go back and check that out if that's something that you're into and you, you missed that. Also, a couple of other interviews just did um, Sean Burke. C-Mac uh, did an interview with him and myself. I did one with Jay Fresh. If you don't know who that is, go listen to the episode because uh, they're both uh, good. Um, Sean Burke, I'm not going to explain to you who that is. But uh, I want to say a special shout out to our guest interviewer, uh, Brady Strachan, who brought the idea to me to interview Morris. And I said, well, why don't you do it if I can help set it up? And so he said he'd be keen to and then asked Scott Campbell and because uh, him and Morris are friends and he helped set the whole thing up. So special shout out to Brady for the idea and the keenness and willingness to do it. He was very professional and great with it. And Scott Campbell for helping set it up and Morris for being a great guest. Uh, they talked for a little over an hour. So people who like that stuff or need a little history lesson should uh, definitely give it give it a listen and uh, check back tomorrow because we're also going to have a series preview for the Jets playing Calgary coming up for the, the play-in stuff. Anyhow, that's enough of uh, an intro. Let's get to the episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Here it goes. Welcome to the Jet-Centric Podcast. My name is Brady Strachan, and I'm very happy to be joined by Winnipeg Jet alumni and former Jets captain Morris Lukowicz. Morris helped lead the WHA Jets to their final Avco Cup championship in 1979 and then was one of two skaters the Jets were able to keep as they joined the NHL the next season. The two-time NHL All-Star led the Jets in points in Winnipeg's first season in the NHL. He was named team captain in his second year and then exploded in the Jets' third NHL season with 43 goals and 92 points in 77 games. Morris, welcome to the Jets-centric podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Brady. Now, most people remember you as one of the original NHL Jets, but you had a fascinating WHA career as well, and I'd like to get into that. If you could take me back to 1976, you were drafted actually by the Pittsburgh Penguins in the NHL and the Houston Arrows of the WHA. What what was that time like for you, and, and how did you make your decision on which professional league to join? You know what, kind of a cool story that goes with that, because that was a time when there weren't any cell phones, and... Uh, the WHA had come on the scene and had become a uh, very legitimate uh, option and possibility for a young guy. 
and it ended up that uh, in the middle of the summer, uh, the Houston Arrows uh, had me, and actually a, a former Medicine Hat Tiger teammate, Brian Maxwell, fly down to Houston. We got to spend about five days with Gordy Howe and uh, Colleen and uh, Mark and Marty, and we went uh, we went for suppers, we went golfing, we went fishing, we like we just had an incredible incredible time together. And um, and the thing is, I I had met Gordy Howe when I was ten years old, and uh, it was a chance meeting. It was the very very first professional hockey player I ever met. And they, uh, my brother Ed and I, my brother Ed is former world curling champion, and uh, we walked into an Eaton store in the middle of summer in Saskatoon, and I was about ten at that time, and we were still living out on the farm, a little place called Spears north of Saskatoon. And anyways, as we walked in, like I had, I stopped dead in my tracks and I looked ahead of me and I remember staring and I, and there was a man sitting there wearing a, uh, a blue blazer with a, a blue shirt and it was open at the top and he was just kind of diddling away on some paper. He was sitting at a table. And I remember I looked over at Ed and I said, and Ed, Ed's 10 years older than me, but he was kind of my coach, my first coach and my mentor, and um, and, I, and I looked over and I said, is that Gordy Howe? And he said, he looked and he says, wow, I think, I think it is. I said, well, what do we do? Like, I started to get all nervous. I said, what do we do? Do we, what's he doing here? Like, do we go say hi? Do we, uh, and I think we were, we went in to buy a baseball club or something. And my Ed, being a tremendous mentor, said, I don't know. What do you think? And uh, it was kind of a very cool moment. And uh, I remember I was getting all anxious, and, uh, and I remember I kind of just closed my eyes, and there was a voice that just said, go for it. And, you know, I love doing some public speaking, and I talk about the next step and how important that next step can be in life. And that, you know, that next step, it can be getting into a car with a drunk driver, or it can be a step towards drugs, or it can be a step towards alcohol, or um, and this was a step towards Gordy Howe, and I, I remember, and we just went up, and and uh, Eaton's had him there signing autographs. It was the middle of July, hot as could be outside. Eaton's hadn't told anybody, and there was nobody there, and we got to spend like 45 minutes with Gordy Howe, and I remember I sat on his left, or I, I kind of stood on his left side, and uh, and he actually hardly said anything to me. He talked mostly with Ed. And they talked about they talked about uh, hockey, curling, golf, fishing, and baseball. And it, and I just kind of sat there, stood there, and and I just fell in love with Gordy Howe. And you know, there's that there's that story about when he uh, you know has that stick around Gretzky's throat. And, and uh, anyways, there was this moment. It was just incredible. I just and. Uh, and there's something about these men. There's something about Gordy Howe and about Bobby Hull. They have a presence that is hard to explain. And uh, it ended up that when he finally kind of finished talking with Eddie, he looked over at me. He said, "He said Morris, he said, well, what do you love most about hockey? And I thought about it for about a second. And I said, Mr. Howe, I love scoring goals. And he <laughs> laughed. And it, took, it just came out like within about a second. And he laughed. He chuckled. So he pulled out a little picture. 
and uh, and he signed on it, and he was writing uh, two, uh, and he was writing Maurice M A U R I C E, and I stopped him about halfway through, and I said, Mr. Howen, you want my name is actually spelled M O R R I S, and he said, Well, you know, but you said you love to score goals, and the Maurice Rocket Richard is such an incredible goal scorer, so I thought I'd sign it like this. He says, Are you okay with that? And I thought about it for a second, and I actually wasn't. But who was I to, you know, say anything bad to Gordy Howe? So I said, sure. And so he actually made it to Maurice, score lots of goals, Gordy Howe. And I took that picture home, and I put it up on the wall. And beside it, I cut a picture out of a hockey magazine. I think it was a hockey news of of, uh, Bobby Hull pitching a bale of hay. And if anybody has seen that picture, like it, Bobby looks like the Hulk. I think I know the one. Pardon me? I think I know the one. He's just a, oh. just a muscular, very muscular man, yeah. Muscle, and he has this d- determined look on his face, and he's pitching this bale of hay. And I put those two beside each other, and when I'd say my prayers at night, young 10-year-old boy, I'd say, Lord, you know, please someday. I'd love to play in the NHL. I'd love to play with Gordy Hum, and while you're at it, will you throw in Bobby Hall? <laughs> And uh, so what happened is that when it, I, I got drafted by Pittsburgh and by Houston, and uh, an amazing sort of thing happened is I had a, uh, a hockey agent, and he disappeared. Like, I was uh, a third-round draft pick, uh, and he was uh, he was busy working with the first-rounders. And anyways, we could not get a hold of him. And it ended up that... Uh, uh, Rand Blair was the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pen- Penguins. I remember he called us first, and uh, we, were, we were on uh, just a landline, and and uh, we asked him, well, Mr. Blair, you know, what are you offering? And he and he told us what he was offering, and we wrote it down on a piece of paper, and and we said, well, we'll you know, we'll call you back, and, uh, and he says, what do you mean, call you back? I said, well, you know, we'll just phone you right back, <laughs> and uh, so we got off the phone, and the Got a hold, you know, attempted to get a hold of our agent again, a guy from Mississauga, and he was could not be reached. And it ended up that Ed and I actually negotiated. My brother Ed and I negotiated my first contract. And we were very inexperienced agents. And what we did was we got on the phone and we called the general manager of the Houston Arrows, who I'd been drafted to too. That was uh, Bill Deneen, and uh, and just said, Bill, this is what Pittsburgh's offering. What are you offering? And he offered a little bit more. And, and uh, we said, okay, we'll call you right back. <laughs> and and so we were inexperienced, but we got very good at it pretty quick. And we went back and forth. And we went back and forth about four times each way. And each time, especially Ren Blair, got more and more irritable. And, uh, I mean, there's pressure. You know, now I would understand it better than I didn't. Uh, there's a lot of pressure that can be put on by a general manager. But anyways... We both we got to a point where both of them said, both Rand Blair and Bill Deneen both said, hey, that's our last offer. Take it or leave it. And I remember we had the two contracts written down on a piece of paper and being inexperienced uh, uh, agents, it was incredible. They were virtually the same contract. And what we didn't know at the time was like first rounders got paid a certain amount. Like my buddies, Don Murdoch and Greg Carroll, who were first rounders that year, they got 150 to sign and 150 to play. And I think mine was about 25 to sign and uh, 45 to play. And they were the same, both sides. And so it ended up 
we got back on the phone with uh, Ren Blair, and Ren said a very funny thing, a very strange thing. And there's this uh, song, Paradise, uh, it's by Meatloaf, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. Yep. And in the song, there's a moment when a gal says something to a guy, and it says, so what's it going to be, boy? And it's incredible. He said that. He said, so what's it going to be, boy? You're going to come play in the NHL with the big boys? You're going to go to that other league? And I remember I looked over my brother, Ed, and I said, what do you think? And Ed, being an amazing mentor, said, I don't know. What do you think? And I remember I went back and I kind of looked at the paper and and I was going back NHL, WHA, Pittsburgh, Houston. And I remember I closed my eyes and it was all of a sudden, I call it intuition now. And there was just like a voice said, go play with Gordie Howe. And it was strange. In this whole negotiation, Gordy kind of got left out of the thing. And then I remember it just came right back in. And I can remember it was just such a clear voice. And it just said, go play with Gordy Howe. And I remember I just, wow. I opened up my eyes and I said, wow. And I got back on the phone. And I said, Mr. Blair, I'd like to thank you for your offer. But you know what? I just really want to play with Gordy Howe. <laughs> and to which he said, well, you little bleeping, bleeping, bleeping. You'll never play day in the NHL and hung up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I looked over at him and I said, he hung up. And uh, so I got on the phone and I called Bill Deneen and then said, Mr. Deneen, I just, you know, I really want to play with Gordy Howe. And he, and, you know, such an amazing decision. Now, I mean, I'm a young, uh, at the time, just turned 20, inexperienced, naive, uh, more like a 16-year-old boy than a 20-year-old. And uh, and so instead of taking a league or a team, and if I chose to be with a man, and I think it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, like to play that year with Gordy Howe and to watch him. And uh, he was the dirtiest guy I ever played with. He was hands down, uh, his elbows and his stick, and, uh, oh, my gosh, like I have so many stories about him. And yet, one of the things thing was at the at the age of 49, he was still one of the best players. And it was because he was still one of, just such an amazing, beautiful skater. Like on the team at that time, he was still the best skater except for his son, Mark. Mark was an incredibly beautiful, powerful skater. I was maybe quicker than Gordy. But when Gordy got going, oh, my gosh, he was beautiful, and he was still strong. Like, he was so strong. So, you know, it was just such an amazing year to be a rookie. To, to uh, You know, I'd always been told I was too small to play uh, professional hockey. And, um, and, uh, and you, know, to be on the, you know, to be on the ice with Gordy Howe, just such an incredible thing. And and Mark Howe was uh, entering his prime as well. And what, what was it like playing with the two of them? Well, and there was Mark and there was Marty. So there were two sons. And Marty was a defenseman, and Mark was actually a left winger. And um, so, I mean, it just is really amazing. Like, Gordy's the only man that's ever, ever played with his kids. And uh, like I said, Gordy was still a tremendous hockey player. And... Um, but you know what? It's kind of strange what can happen. Like, so Mark was a left winger. <laughs> it's 
some of the stuff that happened is incredible. It was, uh, so the, the very first day, all we did was skate. And so like speed, like skating was my strong suit. That plus a, there were a few things that got me to the NHL. As I was a very good skater and a quick skater. Uh, one, I had a really good wrist shot. My slap shot wouldn't break, break a pane of glass. Hmm. And I had the courage to challenge the defenseman at the blue line with speed. And I had the courage to take the puck to the net. There's a lot of, there's sometimes where players just refuse. There's a moment when it's, you know, the player is either going to pull up or it's going to be the pedal to the metal and absolutely go for it. And I had that courage to, to go for it there and, and uh, hang around the net. So there was just a few things, but anyway, so the second day we start scrimmage. And so it ends up, uh, Bill Deneen throws me on right wing with Gordy Howe. And there's this story about the heights of happiness and the depths of despair. So it ends up, I line up and I'm beside Gordy Howe and facing off and wow, like I'm just, at, you know, at the very, you know, pinnacle, the heights of happiness. And, and we literally, we take the puck and we go down and get a shot on that and we face off <laughs> to the left of the goalie. And uh, I go to face off and I'm on my right wing. So I go over by the boards and the hash marks and I look over and here's Mark Howe. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And then literally in the next second, Mark takes and spears me. Like he buries about a foot of a stick <laughs> into my groin. <laughs> and, you know, Mark was just marking his territory. Welcome to the bigs, kid. Kind of well, yeah, and, and he's number one left winger. So it was kind of a kind of a strange thing after that. Like he speared me, and, and I, I went after him, and a guy by the name of John Shella, the defenseman, stepped in front of me, and he said, don't do that. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, he, that guy, you know, he just speared me. And get out of my way. I'm going to go over and uh, hammer him. And he says, no, don't do it. He said, Gordy will get you. I said, what? He said, Gordy will get you. And he said it really quiet. And I went, oh, okay. And what would happen is like if anybody after that, it was something to watch. Like if anybody ever hassled his boys, especially Mark, because Mark was kind of his baby, there would be bloodshed. Wow. And it didn't matter if it was guys on our team uh, in practice, or if a guy on the other team, like it was, if anybody ever hassled his, his boys, there was there was a price that guys paid, and um, yeah. So I mean, it was a kind of a strange occurrence. And then you know what was kind of uh, a f- funny follow up story to that was, I didn't have any hockey sticks. Like I didn't have a pattern hockey stick, and so and then if I would borrow some sticks from the cat and Ted Taylor, who actually is out there still farming around Oak Lake in Manitoba. Yeah. And uh, Ted was a heck of a captain, smart man, good leader. And so he ended up giving me a couple of his, but well, Ted's were, were not goal-scoring sticks. They were a low lie, and they were uh, heavy, and they were actually better for whacking guys than uh, than, than shooting the pocket. And, but I, so I used them for the first couple of days, and I, was, I remember after one practice, I was sitting in the dressing room. You know, so this was still training camp, and I was sitting there. And uh, all of a sudden, I see Mark walking over towards me. He's got a stick in his hands. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's going to spear me again. <laughs> so I tighten up, and he comes over and he says, hey, uh, you know what? I've been watching you the last couple of days. And uh, you know what? you're using Teddy's stick, but he said it's too low a lie for you. The puck keeps sliding off the heel of the stick. He says, you know, here, test out one of mine. Mine's a lie seven. It's a really high lie. And he said, you'll handle the puck better and you'll be able to shoot the puck quicker. 
And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And he says, you know what? So test it out if you like it. He says, I'll give you a half a dozen until you can get your own pattern rate. I went, okay. You know what? I still use that stick today. I still use that lie. Well, and you went, and then shortly after that, we did get a pattern, and and like still the stick that I use in old timers today is uh, still that pattern uh, that Mark gave me in the dressing room. So two years in Houston, and and then the arrows folded. Again, at that point, were you at a, a pivotal moment where you had to make a choice whether you were coming to Winnipeg or was there still the door open to go to Pittsburgh at that time? Yeah, well, there was a door open to go to Pittsburgh. And yet what happened was um, Winnipeg flew us in. They flew in Terry Wyskowski, myself, um, I think Scott Campbell. And uh, we ended up uh, meeting with Michael Gabotti and Barry Shankaro. And... Um, it ended up that I just, uh, and that we met Bobby Hall, and I just was, like, literally, I was thinking to myself, wow, this is amazing. Like, why would I want to go to Pittsburgh? Like, there's, I'm going to get to stay with my teammates uh, from Houston, and uh, the Jets at that time had a very good team, and I was going to get to play with Bobby Hall. So it was like, um, you know, my prayer was answered again, and... Uh, so it was a pretty easy decision to uh, to play with Winnipeg. And at that, so here you have this dream as a ten year old boy to play with Gordie Howe and play with Bobby Hall, who were at that time men in the peaks of their careers. When you look back on this, just how astounding is it that both of them played so long, and then that you were able to play with with both of them very early on in your playing days? Well, and you know what was. It? incredible was it was after I got that autograph from Gordy it was about two years later that he actually retired from the Detroit Red Wings and I remember thinking I mean, my dream kind of was shattered at that time and it wasn't until the WHA came in that Gordy came back out of retirement to play <laughs> so, so there is a certain amount of power in a young boy's prayer there's an innocence and there's a purity. And you know, I'm convinced the universe is always listening. Wow. If I'm going to take anything from this interview, it's uh, to tell to my son, it's it's that. Uh, have dreams and uh, and pray them, say them out loud and, and see what happens. I guess, so coming to Winnipeg and that magical year, because when, as you said, Winnipeg had a really good team, had won two Advo Cups, but they lost some of their, their star talent it was a very different team. Can you can you rem- tell me what it was like joining the Jets that year after you know playing against them for two years? Well, it was uh, difficult from the start, at least from our viewpoint. We just had a reunion last year of the team of that uh, team. It was forty years ago that we had won that championship, and so we got just about everybody back together. There was only a few guys missing, and. Um, I know that from the start, I mean, these were guys that we had played against and did not like. And they, I think, did not like us either. And so I felt that there was a bit of a division from the start. And, um, it's you know, it slowly dissolved. There were some guys like Lyle Moffat who, who just really, one time he stood up in the dressing room and he says, hey, this is enough. This has got to stop. Like, we've, it's, we've got to become a team. And uh, 
there was some tremendous leadership like that that then really had guys start to play together and uh, get to know each other and uh and uh, and kind of sadly in a way the fact that we were struggling with becoming a cohesive unit like Larry Hillman lost his job because of that. like Larry is a good coach and uh it was almost like the team had to get to a new starting point where everybody was on the same level and uh and Tom and that's when Tom McVie came in and uh like I think John Ferguson came in first and then John brought in uh Tom and and that was kind of like a just sort of everybody was starting on the same level there and um it may have been a, a disadvantage for Larry because he had coached the Jets the previous year so when Tom came in it was sort of like and Tom sort of like took zero BS he was a bit of a military sergeant, and uh, and he he really got things uh, going pretty good for us. What was it like playing under him? Well, he was he was a real disciplinarian, and so we worked extremely hard, and that helped us when we went into the playoffs. And also, what helped us when we went into the playoffs is we had some black aces. They were the guys that did not play, and uh, when so when we were finished practicing, they would practice, and uh, and he was brutal on them. Mm-hmm. The skating that they did, so that they would be ready to play if they had to play. So I think that in the back of everybody's mind, nobody wanted to become a black ace. So, I mean, there's you know, fear is a tremendous motivator. You played on the line with Kent Nelson most of that year, is that right? You know what? Mostly with Terry Oskowski at center, and the right winger changed some. It was uh, Rich Preston was at the start of the season, then Kent came in after a while, and it ended up that uh, Kent, I think, played on a different line after that. Because in the final game, uh, Terry and I played together, but uh, I don't think Kent or Rich were on right wing. But you know what? Like I had a very good year that year, and there was actually three things that happened. One was uh, playing with Terry Ruskowski because Terry was a really an amazing puck handler, and he could get the puck out of the corner. And he had a he had a real knack at being able to find me then. And uh, the second thing was uh, with Kent Nielsen. Kent was incredible at being able to hang on to the puck. I was a better player without the puck, so I had the quickness. And I could get to the, the the side of the net, and all that had to happen was for the puck to show up. And if I was good at one really at one thing, I was good at pumping the puck into a wide open net from about six feet away. <laughs> and those two, and both of those players had the ability, and Rich Preston too, not to the same level like Kent Nielsen was at that time. He and Gretzky were were the best players in in the league at that time and possibly two of the best in the world. And uh, But Kent had the ability to hang on to them. Boy, he was an incredible passer. He could sing that, get that thing over. And, um, I remember I actually missed an open net one time and uh, the, when he had set me up. And then he he taught me. The next day he came over and said, can I teach you something that'll so that you can score that? And what happened, and he actually taught me about how to, the, the puck has a certain momentum on it. And then if you actually aim the puck into the opening of the net, 
quite often we miss the net because there's a momentum that the puck has. So we'll end up, uh, and so he says, you actually have to take and shoot the thing back into the goal, back towards the far post, and, the, and then you'll actually hit the center of that. And, I, and I've taught that to like thousands of kids since then. And it's uh, like even in the NHL at times, we'll see a guy miss a wide open net, and it's because he hasn't been taught by Kent Nielsen how to, <laughs> how to make that shot. So, and you know, and and then the third factor in this was that actually something happened right at the start of the season. If you look, Bobby Hull only scored or only played four games at the start of that year, and uh, and it, I remember after four. Uh, games. I uh, I remember saying to my wife, or at that time my girlfriend Eva, said, "Wow, this is going to be tough to be able to have a good year here this year." And she said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, Bobby goes out. He's the first. He goes out first on the power play. He's on the number one power play, but he stays the entire two minutes. Like he comes off at one minute fifty-five seconds. Like I haven't played one second of power play. Like the year before, I'd had a bunch of power play goals in Houston." And I remember saying that to her, and then the next day Bobby came and told us that something had happened, and he had to uh, he had to leave the team for some personal reasons, and that he would be back, and it ended up he didn't come back that season. So it was kind of strange. I went from zero power play time to then I was playing the full two minutes wouldn't come off. Uh, but it, but I mean, it was a huge difference. I don't know if we were to look back how many power play goals I had that year. I may have had twenty five, thirty. I'd like to say thank you to Bobby Hall. Like, I was a young Medicine Hat Tiger, Western Hockey League. How I ever lived through three, survived through three years of junior hockey from 1973 to 75. Uh, and, I, you know, the, the most I ever weighed was 160 pounds. Um, and I was always told I was too small. Uh, actually, one time at an All Star game, a scout came up. And he actually lifted up my pant legs, my bell bottoms, and I had like uh, high, uh, those big uh, high heel shoes on. <laughs> and he says, and literally looked me right in the face and said, "I knew you weren't that tall," and walked and walked away. And and yet Bobby Hall gave so many of us an opportunity uh, to play, and to uh, like him, Lee, you know, being the cornerstone of the WHA, it gave so many hockey players an opportunity to play professional hockey. And then luckily over after a few years, I got that opportunity to play in the NHL and it would not have happened had Bobby Hall not had the, the courage and the, took a risk and to go to a completely new league. Sure. He was paid well to do it. Um, yet, um, uh, without the WHA, like I think I probably like I would I would not have been able to play with Gordy Howe, and uh, I, I you know I wouldn't have been able to get to play with Bobby Hall. And so for I want to say thank you to him, and I think he is the greatest ambassador in in hockey. And I'll just want to mention there was one time after a Houston Arrows game in Houston, so we had just been out on the ice, you know, beating each other up, uh, although we beat up the. You know, the Swedish guys more than they beat us up. But anyways, it was right after game. I happened to walk out of our dressing room right as Bobby was coming out. And I remember I I just said, Mr. Hall, uh, can I ask you a question? And he said, he kind of looked at me. And he said, you know, kind of wondering what's going on. And he said, sure. And I said, you know, what does it take to be an all-star left winger? And I remember he stared at me. 
Like here I was on the other team. And he thought about it for a few seconds. And then he, he kind of just changed and he said, you know what, it takes a lot. And then he took a couple of minutes to tell me what it took to be an all-star left winger. I mean, here's a man who, who stopped to talk with a player from the other team and to teach him something. And I think that just says something amazing about Bobby Hall. Wow, that's an amazing story. That sort of triggers one more question here. As, as a smaller forward, and, and you mentioned the challenges of just breaking into the pro leagues, what would, what, what would you think it would have been like to play in today's NHL uh, with, with the rule changes that have happened since the, uh, the 70s and the 80s uh, to, to play in the modern NHL? One, I'd love it. Uh, because, uh, one, I would be paid a heck of a lot more. Uh, second is, uh, you know what, there's hardly any hitting. Like, it's amazing. Like, all the cross-checks and times guys run me over. And, uh, I mean, like, when I played it, kind of almost for a while, the primary purpose was to drive the forward as hard as you, you know, the defenseman could, drive the forward as hard in the boards as he could, you know, from behind. I mean, it's, it's just... The game hardly has any hitting anymore. Uh, the thing is, though, uh, it, it, it's amazing that guys ever score goals. It's uh, the defensemen skate better than than they did when I played. Like every defenseman now skates well. If a defenseman doesn't skate well, he is in trouble. The goaltending is absolutely amazing. Like how guys get the, the puck past these guys that are six foot. They must look like eight feet tall in the net. Like there's like there's hardly any room to hit. Like how guys even score goals. And then the third thing is the defense is better now than it ever has been collectively. I mean, there's hardly there's hardly any room back in front of the net for a guy. Like I, if Phil Esposito were to play today, he would. I, I don't know if he would score very much because the the front of the net is so plugged up. But so because of those three changes, I think it would be tougher to score goals nowadays. Um, yet it sure would be fun because uh, um, it's more of a skating game now. And I think that would that would have played right into my style. I'd, I'd love to be out there flying around. And then all I'd have to do is get a Kent Nielsen to put that puck over on the side of the net so I could shoot it into a wide-open goal. And you led the Jets in playoff scoring that year onto the Evco Cup championship against a young Wayne Gretzky in the Edmonton Oilers. Can you bring me back to that series and and what that was like? Well, they had an amazing team. And, uh, like, they had Gretzky up the middle. They had Dennis Sobchuk, Stan Weir, uh, Ron Chipperfield. (laughs) They were very strong up the middle. They had toughness in Dave Semenko. They had... uh, uh, they had a lot of grinders on the team, and uh, it was amazing. In that series, there's one film, film, or there's this one clip in the last game because uh, I think I only have I have a video of the last game, and Gretzky comes down on Lars Eric Schober. You know, Schober is one of the best defensemen I ever played with in my life, and God bless his soul, he's passed away. And he was an amazing skater. He was an amazing passer. He was one of the best backward skaters I've ever seen. And in that game, he just 
he he tied like he tricks Schobert twice coming down the ice. He makes a fake, and, and then next thing you know, he's by him. And uh, and Gary Smith makes a couple of amazing saves. But I, I remember Schobert one time. He just said, he said, man, he said. That he has never met a guy that was tougher one on one than Wayne Gretzky, and uh, yeah, so so I mean, I don't, and you know, the darndest thing is that Winnipeg actually had the first shot at Wayne Gretzky, hmm. and, and somehow you know, passed them, passed, and then Edmonton got into the mix. So, I don't know the full story, I've heard different stories, but I actually really think. That had Winnipeg said yes, that they would have had him. Man, how that would have changed Winnipeg's fortunes. Now, Morris, after the WHA folded and the Jets joined the NHL, there was really tough expansion rules, as, as anyone who's followed the team knows, and the Jets only allowing to protect two skaters, you and Scott Campbell. What was it like going from that star-studded team to uh, to the Jets in the NHL, with just devoid of uh, that talent and that that sort of skilled depth? Well, it was just an incredibly huge challenge because we were we were basically in that expansion draft. We gave up some incredible players like Kent Nielsen, Terry Ruskowski, Barry Long, uh, Glenn Hicks, uh, Paul McKinnon. Uh, I believe Kim Claxon went to Pittsburgh. Uh, like we lost so many quality hockey players, and we got hockey players back, but we we got guys that were like seventeenth on the, a team's roster. So we when we went into the NHL that year, we went in with the American Hockey League team, and uh, so I mean we just the first couple of years were so tough. I remember there were so many times during those two years that I would be sitting in and I'd be thinking about, wow, what would it be like to have Terry here or Kenta, Rich Preston? It was like we just missed them so much. And at the time, too, then Edmonton was just where where they were just somehow they didn't get affected by the expansion draft as badly as what we did. And a lot of their star players were were just coming into the league, I guess, when the NHL. Yeah, came. they were just coming in, like they didn't lose Messier, and then they, uh, they, Coffee, Curry, Anderson. Uh, yeah, we're just coming in at that time. Fure. And what was it like through the, I guess, the low points, especially in that second year? How would you get through the season as a team? It just was very, very tough. And the, in the next uh, next year, I, you know, and I'm a part of a couple of NHL records. And sadly, one is that I was a part of one of the worst NHL teams of all time. That was the second year of the Jets. I think we finished the year with nine wins. And uh, we went at 35 games without a win. And, and, and we had a whole bunch of young guys. And from the start, I mean, we were full of piss and vinegar, and we were working hard, and Tom McVie was our coach, and we actually played some amazing hockey. And yet, and there were some games that got away from us. That, uh, Like, I remember one time against Calgary, we were up by two goals with a minute left, and that, that actually Kent Nielsen designed two goals, and they, had, uh, they were you know, tying us that night. They scored twice with the goalie empty. 
or, or the goalie pulled. And uh, and that happened to us a number of times where we had the lead and gave it away. You know, a young team uh, panicked. And so if there was anything in that year that was interesting for me was actually to watch where guys would quit. And what happened is we got into a very bad place and the place is called, well, here we go again. So we would get into some games and if the other team scored, it was, it was almost like there was, could you hear this collective, here we go again. And that is a terrible place to be. And what would happen is we'd have, we'd lose guys and guys would, guys would quit. They, they got into this, here we go again. And it's, and it was almost like they had talked themselves into that we weren't going to win. So it was, it was brutal. It was, uh, it was just one of the toughest experiences. And uh, I know I did my best to show up for every game and to play as hard as I could on every shift. And um, there is to be said, typically it takes a couple things for a team to win. One is talent and the other is desire. And in those first two years, we, did, we really were low on the talent side. And and then what happened was our, like I said, the here we go again, affected our desire. And then in 1981-82, things turned around drastically for the Jets. Uh, Tom Watt was brought in as coach. Dale Howarchuk breaks into the league, and but I, I think the the Jets also brought in a number of forwards: Paul McLean, Lucien Deblois, as well as Serge Savard and Ed Stanowski. Was there a sense early on that this year would be different as you started uh, 81-82? Well, and I think uh, Thomas Keane was there too. Yes. You know, you could see the, how things were, uh, were going to get better, especially with uh, you know, the talent of, uh, of Dale Howarchuk coming in. You know, it's amazing to have an experienced player like Serge Savard come in. You know, he had won, I think, six Stanley Cups. I think also we got Laurie Boschman. So all of a sudden we became very strong up the middle. Like Howardchuk, Steen, Boschman, and then Paul McLean. Like Paul McLean was an amazing hockey player. He ended up, I think, with you know close to 400 goals. And uh, there's two guys that that are amazing. Uh, there's him and Dave Andrewchuk, and they both scored all together. Both of them like a thousand goals in the NHL, I think. Hmm. And they, they scored them all from the hash marks in. And they, these two guys, they were just incredible in front of the net. Like Paul McLean, I think was one of the best in front of the net players that I've ever seen. Andrew Chuck, I think it was the best that's ever been in the NHL. And, um, but Paul, my gosh, he just was, you know, he was strong like a bull. And uh, maybe not the best skater, but boy, when he got to the front of that, he had good hands and he was tough to move. That year you had a, an, an excellent season as well with 43 goals and 92 points. What was it like playing with, with Howard Chuck and, and, uh, in his breakout year? Well, you know what? Uh, like Dale just did some, so many amazing things. Like he could kind of come down the ice and he could basically undress a defenseman. Or he had this ability to fake... And, and have the defenseman back up. So you can make this kind of fake, and then he pulled the puck back, and then he just would rip it. And uh, he had an amazing shot, amazing slap shot, amazing wrist shot. And, and yet I think uh, 
the year I had a really good season was playing with Thomas Steen and Willie Lindstrom. Like to play with Thomas, that was just like getting back with Ruskowski. Uh, I don't think I don't think Thomas shot the puck the entire season. All he did was pass. <laughs> the score is and Willie Lindstrom. Willie was an amazing skater, and like we had a very good line. Uh, I love playing with those two guys. And then after uh, a couple of promising years, your career was with the Jets. At least was kind of hampered by injuries. Can you tell me what happened the next year in eighty two, eighty three? You know, it was kind of sad. I, during the summer, uh, like I, I trained so hard during the summer in order to be, like when I showed up at day one of training camp, I wanted to be the best in shape player. And uh, this one summer, I uh, actually enrolled in a soccer league in Winnipeg because I wanted to learn how to handle uh, the soccer ball with my feet so I could learn how to handle the puck better with my feet. And it ended up that... Uh, the very last game of the of the soccer season, like a week before camp, it ended up I uh, tore my anterior cruciate ligament. Ah, oh, just it was like a gunshot went off when I heard it on the soccer field. So it ended up I missed the entire training camp. You know what? I I, I really want to say that I got tremendous uh, care from the the Winnipeg Jets uh, from uh, Chuck Babcock and also. Uh, there's a place on uh, Taylor where uh, I spent hours working on a Cybex machine and an Orthotron in order to keep my legs strong. And uh, so, but I ended up coming back with a brace. It was a very uncomfortable thing, and so it, it did get in the way of uh, of uh, that season. But you know what? I think I popped back after that. I think I had a 30 goal season. Yeah, and then I, and then I got in, just fell into the bad books. And I, I think that I, you know, what we played against the Edmonton Oilers in a series, and uh, we got beat uh, three straight. And I did not play good in that series. And um, and I think that the Winnipeg and then the Jets decided that uh, that I wasn't going to be in the plans. And it's too bad. It was. I kind of when I go back through my time and I've taken a look and I kind of and I earned the demotion and the trade because of what I did in that Edmonton series. I just did not play very well. I wasn't uh, the leader that I was supposed to be in that series. I didn't produce the way I was supposed to. And, um, but I just really, I kind of wish that, that I had got uh, John Ferguson, Barry Sharon and our head coach. I think at the time it was very long into a room one time, just had a talk because I, I would have. I think I would have really loved to have stayed in Winnipeg and and uh, played my entire career there. So, just was uh, it's strange. And you know, like I said earlier, we can go from the from the penthouse to the outhouse, and it can happen pretty quick. And that was eighty four, eighty five when you were traded mid season for Jim Neal. I vividly remember that moment as a, a young Jets fan. As a, I told you when we were speaking before this interview, I wore number twelve. And uh, they traded you for Jim Nill. I was really disappointed at that time. But what was that like for you the first time being traded, especially from a team where you had so much success prior to that? Well, there's two things. It's sad and, and, and it's exciting. Is that, uh, like, I wasn't playing for the Jets. And uh, there were guys that were playing in front of me that didn't 
have near the numbers that I did. But I'd earned it, like I said, I'd earned my way into that spot. And uh, so I remember uh, the day that, that it did happen and and uh, where Fergie, uh, I was the last to come off the bus and, and he said, well, you know, we've traded you. And, and the thing is, I finally asked for a trade because I wasn't being played. And, you know, <clears throat> I've had all sorts of injuries in hockey. Like, I got my knee busted up in, uh, playing against the uh, Rangers uh, where Ron Duguay hit me low. I've uh, been run through the glass, cross-checked by Mike Milbury five times in a row on a power play. I mean, uh, run into the boards. And those all hurt. And yet none of them compared to the, the pain of sitting on the bench and not playing. Mm. It's just, it is so, I mean, like, I love hockey. Like, I think I would have played hockey had we not been paid anything. So, like, not to play, it just, it when it rotted my gut and it breaks out, you know, broke my heart. And so, finally, I, I finally, I asked for a trade. And uh, so, and yet there is the excitement coming to a new team. Uh, I came into the Boston dressing room and, and there was a spot open beside Ray Bork. So I thought, wow. So I went and sat beside him and I'd like to be able to sit beside Ray Bork for uh, the end of one season and start of the next. I mean, he's one of the greatest defensemen of all time. You know, just to kind of ask him every once in a while, you know, what are you thinking? <laughs> and uh, like he was amazing. He, he sweated more than any hockey player I've ever played with. Like they would bring him a new pair of gloves at the end of each period, and they'd bring him a new jersey at the end of the second. And they would take like two guys to haul the other one away. Like the sweat just poured off. It was, it was unbelievable. So I mean, there's you know there's a sadness of leaving all everything that had been worked at in Winnipeg, and yet there was an excitement, new situation, new possibility. And, uh, you know, they talk about the uh, Battle of Alberta and how much Edmonton and uh, Calgary dislike each other. Well, it doesn't even come close to how much Montreal and Boston hate each other. Like, that is at a completely different level. There, Like, there is an animosity there that is amazing. So, I mean, to, you don't get to experience that was pretty good and um I just and uh but I ended up getting a a real bad a high ankle sprain pat flatly from the islanders one time I just went to turn I went to get the puck in the corner I went to turn and boom he hit me and and uh as a result of that injury I I, I really I started out playing really good in Boston but then that injury really held me back you went on to L.A., and I think you played under Pat Quinn, who was the coach there for a time. I'm here in British Columbia, where, where Pat Quinn is uh, is like a hockey god from when he went to the Canucks. What was it like playing under Pat Quinn? I, I, I love Pat Quinn, and he is, uh, he is one of the best coaches of all time. He's a very smart man, and he, uh, I really, we really clicked. And so it was kind of interesting. The one year, we got two rookies that came in. Actually, we got three that came in. There was uh, Luke Robitaille and uh, Jimmy Carson and Steve Deshane, and they all came in one year. It was my second year there. And uh, it ended up that uh, Pat came to me and said, uh, "You know what? I'd like you to mentor Jimmy Carson. 
and uh, he says, I'm going to have Marcel work with Luke. And so and I want you to play with Jimmy and, uh, and uh, work with him. And, uh, and I went, wow. Like I thought, wow, that's such a cool thing to be asked to do. Right up until that last day when, uh, when Pat ended up taking the coaching and general manager job in Vancouver and he left our team halfway through the season. It was like, I think the last game we played was, uh, December 31. That would have been of, uh, uh, 86. And, uh, then the next, the next day he was gone. And on that day, I remember we looked back, Jimmy and I were both having a really good season and we were the two top plus minus players on the team. And Jimmy was not a guy that liked back checking. He was a young guy that wanted to score goals. So it was, uh, I think Pat was really happy with how that had worked out. And uh, Jimmy and I were having a good year together at that time. You ended your professional career playing in Europe, in Italy, in 1987. Were there a lot of uh, you know former NHL players going over to Europe at that time? Yes, the other were. And so it was, you know what, actually I finished my time in the NHL, but I went and I tried out for the, uh, the Olympic team. Because uh, um, it ended up that I had another agent situation. My agent had actually passed away. And I had another agent. He didn't do anything for me. And I made the mistake that I didn't go out and market myself to teams and possibly find somewhere to play. And so it kind of like as a last sort of thing, I got a hold of Dave King. And I thought if I could play for the Olympic team, then somebody, and if I played really well, then someone would take a look and give me an opportunity to get back into the NHL. And, uh, and so, the, you know, that's a, I went and played really, really well for the Olympic team. And then uh, things kind of went sideways on a bit of a foolish thing. And it ended up that uh, I basically was told that, and at the time I was leading the team in uh, scoring you know, through our through our training camp. And, uh, and we had just beaten the Swedes in Calgary. And our line, uh, which was uh, Schreiber, Wally Schreiber, uh, oh, who is it? I can't remember who the centerman is right now. But uh, we were the first three stars of the game, and then uh, and then the very last game we ended up losing in Medicine Hat to, to that same Swedish team. But it ended up that uh, I was told the next day that even though I played really well, uh, Dave expected to get some NHLers uh, right before the Olympics, and if they were that I would be uh, let go at the time. And I, and I, and I said, I'm leading the team in scoring. Why, why would you let me go? Why would you let somebody else go? And he said, well, they've, they've been in the program longer than you. And I said, well, so I thought about it and I, and I said, no way. I've made a commitment to this team. I'm leading the team in scoring. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. And you say that a week before I could get replaced. No way. And so it ended up that I opted to go and play in Europe. That time. If I could do it again, I think I would have stayed because it ended up the team didn't get, they didn't get, they thought they were going to get Gretzky, Messier, some of the top NHLers. And it ended up that they got um, Merlin Mel- Melanowski, Jim Poplinski, Steve Tambellini. So I probably would have had my spot there. So a couple of mistakes made, but I didn't like it. If I was going to make a full commitment to the team, I wanted a full commitment back from the, from the, the management. 
yeah, and you know what? Playing in Italy was quite an experience. I had never skied before, so I learned to, our, our training grounds for skiing were the Italian, Swiss, Austrian, and French Alps. And it was amazing. The first time I went skiing, I could not turn. <laughs> I'd have to fall, lift my skis up, point them the other direction, get up and go again. It was crazy. But you know what? And, and literally any bunny hill, any little bunny hill, just send me flying. <clears throat> and we ended up getting a, a skiing lesson from a German, and he didn't speak any English. We didn't speak any German. And that was a comedy experience. <laughs> and, uh, but it ended up that, uh, like, skiing is a little bit different than skating. And But then once we caught on, wow. Like, I turned into a bit of a kamikaze skier pretty quick. <laughs> And then, uh, and then, you know, after Italy, I ended up following up with four different years of playing hockey in Switzerland. And you know what? I was just very impressed with, uh, like, the hockey in Italy was a lot of fun. Uh, we played on some outdoor rinks, though. It was a little bit of, like, I played in the snow and the rain and the lightning and the, and the ice covered in pine needles. It's kind of interesting. When the ice is completely covered with pine needles, uh I could still skate on it. I was absolutely amazed. And the puck leaves a trail. Like it was the very first <laughs> laser or what do they call it? You know, where there's a, where there's a trail. Like the comet, right? Yeah. So you make a pass and it would like go through these pine needles and, uh, and it would leave a trail. But, uh, and, uh, so Italy was, it was kind of just moving up the ladder a little bit. And yet the Swiss, when I got it, played hockey in Switzerland, it was a lot of fun. I played in the second division there the whole time. But the Swiss were very, very committed to uh, being the best they could be. And they have so badly, so, so badly wanted to win a gold medal, let's say at the juniors or the world championships. And I think even more than anything, if, if they, they just want to beat Canada. Like when I was there, they just like they just they dislike the Russians, hmm. uh, but they and they love it if they could ever beat the Russians. But they really want to beat Canada. So, anyways, anyway, they've uh, they've improved. They're they have poured a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of coaching and and uh, and they've they've done you know better and better over the years. In 2016, you returned to Winnipeg to play in the Heritage Classic. Now, watching that game, you looked to be one of the most fit players on the ice. What was it like to to go out onto that ice surface in front of that amazing crowd uh, at the stadium in Winnipeg? Well, it really was incredible. Like, I'd heard about how incredible the games were and uh, from other players, and then finally to get out in that game. What was kind of, there were a couple of things that were extremely cool was that uh, the day before we practiced at the uh, MTS center downtown and uh, we were in one dressing room, the Oilers in the other. And uh, so it was cool to come by and see, you know, Gretzky, Nessie, their jerseys up and, and we practiced, you know, at different times. And then what was a pretty amazing experience was to walk into the, the football stadium as we walked into the dressing room, both teams were in the same room. And there was just a table in between. <laughs> and so it was kind of, we all went over to our side. They were on their side. 
Yeah, but then Howard Chuck walked across and he said hello to uh, to Wing, and then uh, somebody else walked over, and then I went over and said hi to Mark Messier, and it ended up. It was a very cool feeling because we all of a sudden we realized, wow, well, you know, we're all in this together, and it ended up being a very very fun experience. I got an amazing picture of me and Dave Semenko, and Dave has passed away, and uh, I got to admit I really hated him when I played against him. And one time he two handed me over the head with his stick. Uh, he got a five-minute major, and he was uh, during that five-minute major, the Oilers only scored 200 shorthanded goals. So <laughs> it was, uh, but uh, so that was one incredible thing. The other thing was during the introductions was uh, like when I played in Winnipeg, there was a section that was called Luke's Lookout, and I finally met the guys that the young guys that were in that uh, section. And I met them years later, and. Uh, but I mean, they would they would they would chant Luke Luke Luke, and uh, like after I'd score a goal or at the start of the game, we'd go up for a skate, and it was very cool. Like it just always got me up for the games. And when I got announced, when I my name got announced, the whole stadium chanted Luke, and uh, like I was the only player <laughs> that got that, and like I was almost brought to tears. I want to say that I just if any of there's any of the Jets fans that are that were at that game, I just want you to know how incredibly uh, good that felt. Uh, to, uh, because it just really told me that fans had remembered. Wow, what a moment. What, what a it story was. there. And finally, we're conducting this interview just a few days before the NHL starts up again with the, the qualifying rounds where the Jets will face off against the Calgary Flames. You now live in Calgary. I know you've done some charity work as an NHL alumni for the Flames organization, so I'm interested how you're feeling seeing these teams match up. Well, and there's something to remember is that the uh, Jets didn't have a team for a long, long time. So I have become a Flames fan, too. And uh, I love the Flames. And uh, whenever they play matchup games, uh, people have asked me, like, who do you cheer for? And I said, well, you know what? I Typically I cheer that uh, the game finishes in a tie because both teams uh, get a point. And then, uh, and then I, I cheer that the home team wins in overtime so that all the fans go home happy. <laughs> And then if it happens to go into into a shootout, then whoever wins wins. And um, and yet in this series, like I think the Jets can win the Stanley Cup. They they came so close to beating Vegas, like they they almost had the cup a couple of years ago. That series, oh my gosh, just a couple of shots. If Shifley scores on this one shot. Um, like that whole series could have changed, and and the, and the Jets win that series, they could have won the Stanley Cup. So they have a team that can win, and uh, uh, I, I must admit their defense got hammered at the start of the season with losing three key guys with Truba. Um, what was the guy uh, went to uh, Van? Tyler Myers. Myers, and then uh, with Big Buff not showing up, wow, and yet. Uh, you know, Josh Mor- Morrissey has stepped in there big time. And he was playing some amazing hockey last year for them. And they, I mean, they've got quality scorers up front. So um, 
there's a saying is defense wins games, offense wins fans, and special teams win championships. They can get their special teams really clicking. Like, they have a team. They can win. They can beat anybody. And so, uh, like, I'm cheering for them in this series. And um, please uh, not to tell anybody back in Calgary. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? This this team, it's got amazing coaching. It's got amazing scoring. Like, they've got uh, five guys that scored a ton of goals last year uh, before the season stopped. Uh, they've got a, a very good power play, good penalty killing, and um, I, I call him uh, Hella Wall. Like he's just really got to be like uh, they used to. They had the Berlin Wall years ago. Uh, like he's really got to stop everything. Like typically, it's rare that a, that a team wins the Stanley Cup without amazing goaltending. Detroit did it one year, but it is rare. And it's typically the team that has the best goaltending wins, and so he he's just really got to come up big. I believe he I believe he can. I just uh, so it's just uh, and you know it's kind of an interesting thing. There's this isn't a full season to get to have the chemistry going. It's, <laughs> the chemistry will have to happen really quick. And I I think the team that makes the adjustment quick to really realize that while wow, we are playing here and we're in it. The team that makes that adjustment quick, and you know, to heck with, you know, the fact that there aren't any fans. Uh, that's uh, going to be a huge, huge advantage. And, uh, anyways, but you know what? The Jets—they have fantastic speed. Um, I think they can do it. You coach uh, young players now. Is that uh, you're part of hockey schools? Is that is that right? I, you know, and I've run my own hockey schools, and then I've done a lot of one-on-one coaching, and um, yeah, I love it. Like I've done it for years, and um, you know, and it just is—it uh, was a way for me to get back to the game. And you know, what? actually, Morrissey, actually, um, I worked with him. He was a part of a, a guy's uh, Friday morning group that <laughs> we practiced every Friday morning at I think six thirty a.m. And I had to truck across the other side of the city to a rink called Frank McCool. And uh, I, there was a man by the name of Paul Wilson. And he actually ran uh, Mark's Work Warehouse and put together a group of incredible young players. And uh, he had me work with them for about five years in a row. And uh, and uh, Josh was one of them. Beautiful. Even as a young boy, he was an amazing skater. So... Uh, What's really cool is that every one of those boys eventually uh, went either university route or uh, or NHL. So it was fun working with that group. What's it like to see Josh Morrissey's development as a player and and especially turning into a a real cornerstone piece on the Winnipeg defense? Yeah, it's very cool. He's uh, like, he he is such a strong skater and yet he is very, very good with that. Some of the some of his puck handling moves on the point, and also his shooting. And you know what? I think that he maybe even learned a little bit of that from me. Mm-hmm. So, and and for the Jets to win, uh, it'll, he'll have to play amazing. Well, Morris, I really appreciate all your time here. It's it's been a real pleasure talking to you and just hearing uh, some of these stories and having you sort of 
peel the curtain back to explain what was going on uh, during all of these different stages of your career. It's uh, it's a real pleasure and a real honor to speak to you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Brady. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to the stories. I'm Kurt Kielbach, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.